Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Ezra Cohen, an adjunct senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, uh, who also served as the acting undersecretary of defense for intelligence during the Trump administration. He also served as the acting assistant secretary of defense for special operations and low intensity conflict, uh, both of which fall under his purview at the Hudson Institute. Ezra, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the program. Vago, thanks for having me. Uh, it is it is a pleasure. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Ezra, thanks very much again for uh, joining us. Vast array of things uh, that I wanna get to in part, uh, including your, your uh, suggestions on you know how we might be able to improve uh, the the national uh, cyber game, but I want to start with uh, the question of improving cyber defenses and what we're getting right and where we need uh, greater uh, improvement. Uh, certainly, the last four administrations have looked at cyber as being something important, each to have rising degrees of urgency. Uh, this administration has put new authorities uh, to use that came from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, obviously Chris Inglis sitting as National Cyber Director, uh, somebody who you knew well, Ann Newberger, who's uh, the President's uh, Principal uh, Cyber uh, Advisor, uh, Jen Easterly, and, and a number of other talented folks, uh, Paul Nakasone, obviously, at NSA and, and Cyber command defending forward in a real-time fashion, um, as we've seen over the last couple of months. From, from your perspective, what are we getting right? Where is it that there is room for improvement? Well, Vago, I, I think like any evolving form of warfare, um, often you have, especially when it comes to the U.S. government's involvement in that form of warfare, the U.S. government's authorities uh, do tend to lag behind. Uh, and I think we are finally getting to the point where uh, the forces that we're depending on to, uh, you know, conduct this cyber offense uh, and defense uh, have the authorities that they need. And, and it is a patchwork of authorities. Um, there's executive orders. There are uh, uh, certain legislative authorities. Um, and then there are just, you know, agency regulations. How do agencies uh, uh work together. Um, and, and I think we're finally getting to a place where we do have the right authorities in place. I think the other key thing is uh, personnel. Uh, you know, in Chris and Ann, uh, you have two extremely uh, driven and knowledgeable individuals who, who understand how the government works with the private sector to, to secure uh, uh, key parts and, and key strategic parts of the United States. And, um, and, and that can't be understated. And then of course, there's the, the training of, of the personnel who are actually conducting the, the missions day to day. And we're finally getting to the point where we have uh, uh, the, the, the necessary experience to really compete in cyberspace. I want to pull on the string of um, what we do better on uh, authorities. Obviously, everybody has been working uh, this challenge, and we heard from Daniel Silverberg of uh, Center for New American Security uh, and the Capstone Consultancy last week on this a little bit. So what are the outstanding work, um, Ezra, from your standpoint, that has to get done, right? Because we're working on straightening all this uh, stuff out. We have the right people that are in the right jobs doing the things, right, which is all positive. 
but but there are still hangups, right? So what are the specific hangups that we need to iron out? I think that you know one thing, and, and you you saw this debate early on in the Biden administration, um, and and you've and there has been an arc of this, uh, and, and actually I think I should start back with Obama. Um, cyber warfare was was more new, and there were uh, very heavy restrictions on what I would call executions of specific cyber missions, uh, and that of course, uh, in order to prepare the environment in order to be able to conduct a uh, cyber operation in a time of war, or even to conduct the cyber operation to defend the United States, you have to take certain preparatory actions, which in and of themselves are cyber operations. And so when you heavily restrict the execution of operations, you also restrict the ability of our cyber forces to get ready for a wartime scenario. Uh, in the Trump administration, you saw the, the, the bar relaxed and a delegation of execution authority to the Secretary of Defense and then ultimately to the, uh, the Cybercom commander. Um, what you have now and, and this debate that you've seen in the beginning of the Biden administration was that perhaps there wasn't enough control uh, and that too much authority was delegated to the Secretary of Defense to execute these cyber operations. Um, and, and, and specifically what was raised was uh, deconfliction with the State Department. Uh, was there proper deep confliction uh, and, 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 and really looking at potential diplomatic fallout of conducting such operations? So I think that you know th this is complicated, uh, and you mentioned it, Vago. Uh, the cyber operations happen at such a pace that I, you know, and I would argue that uh, checking in with uh, the State Department and and other government agencies could significantly slow down the ability to defend the United States, uh, but also to conduct preparatory steps that may be necessary when you have a foreign cyber actor. Uh, that's attempting to crawl through your networks, or if you have deployed an exploit on a foreign adversary system, they could get to work immediately in trying to shut down that exploit. We also don't know how long these exploits will last on the shelf. So of course, uh, having speed is really important. And you know, I think that what still needs to be worked out is how do you still have interagency coordination uh, at an appropriate level, while also not uh, negatively affecting the speed at by which we conduct these operations. I want to uh, get to that in a minute because um, there are a lot of other elements uh, that that go uh, with that. Um, and and you went to the operational side of things, and and we should understand that that offense and defense are conjoined, uh, right? Uh, I remember in the Obama administration having somewhat Talmudic discussions with people about what constitutes offensive, what constitutes defensive, as opposed to actually thinking about them in a spectrum, right? Which is, which is, I think, how we tend to regard them, and hence the decision to devolve some of these uh, of offensive authorities uh, further down instead of it, them being White House uh, related, right? I mean, we can understand if it's a special, uh, particular operation, uh, whether it's Stuxnet or something else, as opposed to actually sort of one of the mill thrust and parry. Uh, that that we're uh, increasingly seeing, but in terms of improving 
the partnership and the partnership uh, with industry and even the partnership and cooperation across government. What do you think are some of the things that that have to happen? You know, I know I'm not talking to a, a first order industrial security guy, uh, right? But what are some ways of improving that public-private partnership as far as you're concerned? Because we've heard from Admiral Mike Rogers on this uh, show, uh, former NSA and former Cyber Command, the importance of having that partnership and actually having a genuine partnership uh, as opposed to, to, to one that sort of works you know, in a cocktail discussion. What, what, is, what does that partnership need to look like from, from your perspective? Yeah, so I, I, think, that the, the, I think the pipeline shutdown um, last year uh, w- w- was the wake-up call for uh, for the average American that doesn't spend their time thinking about you know operations in cyberspace that that private companies and the cybersecurity uh, characteristics of private companies are not just important to that company's stock price but are important to the the life livelihood of Americans and um, and, and so. That was a wake-up call, and I think that you know you you have seen uh, we are on a good path from the uh, uh, Trump administration in some of the executive orders that were put in place, also now on to the Biden administration, which has done a very good job of continuing that trajectory and making it clear and encouraging certain uh, security standards for critical uh, businesses that are in the critical infrastructure space. I think that you know one of the things that we still have to get over, and I think there might need to be uh, a le- there is a legislative need here, which is that um, there is still some hesitancy, right? The, the the executive order that was put in place by the Biden administration, it, it, it's still optional, and there are just some parts of our economy that are just so important, and I would you know submit that perhaps uh, certain uh, activities should not be optional. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think there's going to need to be a legislative fix for that. And unfortunately, there's still a concern in, in the private sector that, you know, cooperating with the government, um, uh, could present a risk, right. Uh, you know, th- this idea that, uh, that, that the government will come in and be, you know, unrestrained working on your networks. Um, that's something that gives private companies pause. So I think we have to figure out a construct where we, we reduce that concern, um, while also being able to protect uh, these critical parts of our economy. But, but you know, that, is that, um, look, I mean, I, I understand that from, uh, for a, for private industry, this is my network. Um, and, you know, th- this sort of uh, sense, and, and you see here it reflected in the political debate, right? We can't be a nanny state. If they want to be hacked, they should be hacked. Well, but ultimately, right, you and I are both paying for some of the technology uh, and the investment, and are collectively paying the price. So increasingly, we're finding that the government does approach companies, right, and does monitor and have hints, uh, right. So I mean, to an extent, it seems almost neuralgic in its behavior, right. The the outcomes are actually positive outcomes. Hey, Ezra, you have a problem in your network. We're highlighting that you have a problem in your network. Um, I mean, ultimately what's the sort of rule of reason that then must shape how it is we go forward, I guess, is, is my question. I mean, I fully understand why everybody wants to, you know, and I'm a, a privacy advocate and I understand the importance of putting limits on government and, and going through a court process, right. And the, the whole nine yards, but ultimately like, what's the sort of change we need because we're finding that the capability that the national security agency, for example, and 
Cyber Command bring to it are unprecedented in their ability to warn of intrusion and of danger, right? How do we, what's the, what's the line here? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, obviously the, the, the um, primary, uh, in some sense, like I said early on, there's a patchwork of authorities here, but, you know, um, domestically, uh, the FBI has, has taken somewhat of a leading role. And, you know, Vago, I just, you know, put this out there, but, you know, what American company is without hesitation going to say to the FBI, come and operate on, on my network? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I think that there's, there is going to be pause in every American corporation about that. Now, I think ultimately most will say yes, because they realize that the, that the, that the Bureau has a uh, very, imp- uh, very important role uh, in, in, in securing the United States, but there is going to be pause. And so, you know, I think that Congress needs to work out um, through law um, certain provisions that will make the private sector feel more comfortable um, with, with allowing the U.S. government to take steps to protect critical infrastructure. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that obviously part of this and, and, you know, we'll get to this in a bit, but part of this has to do with, um, you know, Cybercom and NSA being combined into one, um, you know, combining a, uh, a Title 10 organization with a Title 50 organization, which is almost what we have in the current construct. So I think that all of those things together are, are ways to improve the U.S. government's reaction with the private sector. Uh, well, let me uh, take you to that question, right? Because one of the reasons we conjoined uh, the National Security Agency and Cyber Command was the nexus of uh, signals of intelligence, of action, um, the operationalization of, of cyber, the understanding, right? I mean, the Pentagon looks at cyber and electronic warfare now as conjoined, right? Not separate, uh, because it, it is all about spectrum and ultimately it's all about data, Ezra. So what's your case for breaking the job up again, right? Because we assembled the two jobs under the guise that it was the right thing to do. So why yes. does it make sense to break them up again? Well, look, when we when we were at the infancy of uh, the establishment of a cyber force, right? Uh, cyber command wasn't, wasn't elevated until, to a combatant command until uh, 2016. Uh, before that, it was a, a sub-command um, of, uh, of US STRATCOM. Um, but when we, when we elevated Cybercom to a combatant command and it was in its infancy, and even when we were in the infancy of creating this, this cyber force, it made sense to benefit from the experience of NSA, albeit its intelligence collection mission, uh, but benefit from uh, the NSA's experience in operating in the cyberspace domain um, to to help kind of, you know, develop this cyber force, this offensive cyber force. Um, We've now progressed uh, to a point where, you know, the two organizations, and, and certainly U.S. Cyber Command will never be able to develop into a fully independent, fully operational and capable force while it continues to have NSA as a crutch. Uh, I, I think that that's at an operational level. That's why it's an operational imperative. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, twice in the Obama administration in 2013, uh, Obama considered splitting uh, uh, cybercom off from NSA 
He considered it again in 2016, at the end of 2016, just before uh, the transition to the Trump administration. And he actually said that this that this dual hat relationship in his signing statement of the 2017 NDAA, he said that, uh, that, that you know, the two organizations have to have separate leaders if they want to be able to develop into, you know, independent uh, organizations that are fully operational. And, you know, again, in 2020, uh, in December of 2020, when I was USDI, we, we began to assess uh, uh, whether or not the two should be split. Um, and, and of course, Congress has repeatedly re- reiterated this as well. So I think that, you know, we're just at a point now where we have to move forward on this if we really want CyberCon to be fully capable. Let me uh, uh, take you to the question of uh, lessons uh, from uh, Ukraine, Russian operations, but also, um, you know, the kind of stuff the Chinese uh, have been doing, right? I mean, we have a tendency of focusing on on the Russians and hackers and, um, you know, nation intrusions, but also the Chinese have been very, very active. What do you think are the most important lessons, um, Ezra, from uh, the, in terms of sort of better understanding the threat? Uh, and I want to follow up with sort of an open source intelligence question, drawing on on your background as, as well. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I think that um, what we've learned uh, from, from what's happened is, you know, this defend forward model uh, that uh, that uh, Cybercom has taken um, uh, is really working, and I think it shows that you know we've been able to um, counter these these threats, this full spectrum warfare threat from Russia, which includes a cyber aspect. Uh, we've been able to counter these threats. I think in large part because of the uh, relaxation going back to what I was talking about before, the relaxation of being able to take preparatory actions in cyberspace. Um, Had we not relaxed those, I'm not sure we would have been as prepared. But I also think there's a lot more work to do. And this is where we get into um, uh, cyber uh, being a, uh, a avenue to engage in information operations. Um, you know, in the past, in, in the Vietnam era, we would drop leaflets out of planes to message and counter message the adversary. Now we need to be better postured to use the cyber domain to engage in information uh, warfare. And so and I think, go ahead. No, 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 go on. Uh, finish up because I have a follow up on that. So I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we still are not able to uh, operate quickly enough uh, in the cyber era, the, 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 the current era. We are not able to operate quickly enough in the cyber domain for the purposes of engaging in information warfare. Where's the best place to do that, right? I mean, because if you look at the order of the Pentagon, the way it looks at it, right, PSYOPs uh, falls into a little bit of a different uh, kind of category. If you have NSA, it's a signals intelligence uh, command. If you look at it, uh, if you look at the cyber command, it's it's a cyber operations. So where does the information m- mission fall? Because our view of this has been that we are the ones who or generally focused on truth, you know, justice in the American way, right? Uh, and the other guy disinforms, we inform or, or misinforms. What's the balance line and where does that mission then fall? 
not saying that it's not an absolutely critical mission, right? We used to have U.S. information agency that used to be focused on countering uh, Russian and Chinese uh, propaganda. Like, what's the best place to put that then? Well, uh, uh, undoubtedly, uh, you know, information operations uh, is a key pillar of this bigger irregular warfare uh, that, that the department is refocusing on now that we are in the great age of great power competition. And, uh, you know, um, IW uh, is the purview of uh, U.S. Special Operations Command, uh, which is subordinate to ASD Solik. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I really believe that, uh, that the best home for uh, information operations, uh, because you're right, we do need a special, we do need specialization is at US SOCOM. I think the, the other thing too, and this goes back to the previous uh, debate about you know, Cybercom and NSA, the, the, having um, intelligence agency uh, like NSA also be responsible for uh, uh, IO and messaging and, and, and changing perceptions. You know, when it's combined with NSA and intelligence agency, uh, it, it raises certain oversight concerns. And, you know, this is the other part of that. I mean, uh, having NSA and Cybercom together, uh, it, 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 there, there are serious oversight issues. And um, I think that, you know, this was also raised uh, in, you know, recommendation 24 of President Obama's uh, review group after the Snowden incident uh, actually said that by splitting the two, you would solve some of these oversight concerns. So I think today the best place is, is undoubtedly uh, SOCOM. Um, let me uh, take you uh, two questions, security clearances, uh, where we're going to end up, but a really quest interesting question on um, sort of open source intelligence, right? I mean, the Ukraine war uh, is an extraordinary demonstration of open source in intelligence. It is a capability that's been improving. Uh, 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 retired uh, Lieutenant General Jim Clapper has joined us to talk about uh, all, all source intelligence, open source intelligence, and indeed he's one of the fathers of geospatial uh, intelligence. And all of this draws on cyberspace, uh, ultimately. Uh, you are a, um, a former member of the clandestine service and, and somebody trained both on the human side of things, but also uh, other uh, uh, tradecraft, uh, electronic and otherwise. What's the future of intelligence because the game is is changing so much so that you know there are folks who who maintain that you know the open source stuff is actually even better than it is the you know some of the intelligence that we uh, tend to get right i mean why was wikileaks so so bad because state department cables are very unvarnished and very good intelligence and they come from cocktail parties not exactly from spy satellites right how how is the game changing what cyber's role in that um, and how do we need to think about intelligence differently open source uh, is going to be increasingly a, a more important pillar of the intelligence picture that we have it already is an important pillar but it's because of we are in the in, in, in well into the internet age uh, open source is, is more important than ever um, but however, there still are uh, some really exquisite capabilities that the intelligence community has, um, you know, for instance, to understand the, 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 the thinking of somebody like, um, you know, a foreign adversary. Um, you may be able to get some understanding of that through open source, but, you know, it's going to be very hard. 
however, there are certain data streams that you know can be pieced together from the open source realm to, to clear up that picture. Open source needs to work, and, and where we need to go is that open source works better together with those exquisite capabilities to present an even clearer picture to the policymaker. This ultimately comes down to, you know, how do we make use of open source, which in terms of volume is much larger than uh, the exquisite sources of information that the U.S. government has. And so it comes down to a, really a big data uh, issue. Um, we have to have uh, the proper uh, architecture to be able to analyze these large amounts of information. Right now, what I'm seeing and something that I dealt with at USDI every day is there is, a, especially in the open source space, there's a large amount of duplication uh, across the intelligence community and across the Department of Defense. Uh, and the government is at times paying twice for the same streams of information, maybe even three times, that we need to have a top to bottom look at all of the open source information the U.S. government is acquiring. And we need to really figure out how we make this very efficient. There needs, it needs to be centralized at one point within the U.S. government, just like we have, you know, uh, for instance, as you brought up, NGA is responsible for GeoInt. Uh, NSA is responsible for SIGINT. We need to have one, one home for open source uh, across the intelligence community. And, uh, and I think that that will help us think better and more strategically about the investments we make and also free up resources to really tackle this big data issue. 20 seconds left. Just talk to us really quickly about security clearances because there's a, almost a historic backlog and the cyber field uh, needs those clearances as much as anyone else. So there's, there's not just a shortage of talent, but a shortage of clear talent to be able to go into the community. Talk to us about that a little bit. And, and you know, we're ending where we started, which is talking about what CyberCon needs to, to become fully effective. And part of that is the people, like I said before. Uh, we, we have to have a, a more uh, adaptive security clearance process that's able to uh, make uh, more informed decisions um, that, that really look at the whole of person. And we have moved on to this whole of person idea, continuous monitoring, where we aren't just cherry picking one incident from you know, many years ago. Uh, we need to be able to have the best and brightest in our cyber force, but also part of it is keeping them. And that means having a security clearance process where there are due process rights uh, for people, especially at the Department of Defense, so that you know, if there is a question raised about their suitability, they are able, uh, in a way that's consistent with the U.S. Constitution, to be able to have a hearing to address those issues. And 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 that's you know, Vago, I have to say, and I can end here. One of the proudest things uh, from my uh, service at DoD um, uh, for over the past decade is the Security Clearance Reform Memorandum, which I put into place when I was USDI, which gave every single uh, military member and, and DOD civilian the right to an appeal before their security clearance is taken from them. Ezra, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on the program uh, again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.